Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Frida Kahlo. Now let's get started with our story about Frida Kahlo. Known during her lifetime as merely the wife of Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo subsequently ascended to artistic prominence and popular culture fame in her own right, becoming a worldwide social and political icon. Her sickly childhood, painful existence, tortured relationship with Rivera, and brief life provided a tragic backdrop to her artistic accomplishment now recognized as unique and transcendental. She remains so revered in Mexico that her works have been designated as national heritage objects, prohibited from foreign export. Internationally, she is now perceived as one of the most important and original artists of the 20th century. Magdalena Carmen Frida Kahlo Calderon was born on July 6, 1907, in Coyoacan, Mexico. Today, Coyoacan, officially a borough of the federal district, is part of the urban sprawl of Mexico City. But when Frida was born, it consisted of open space, farm, and ranch land. Although her birthday probably occurred at her grandmother's house, Frida would spend her childhood and much of her life living in the Casa Azul, the blue house built by her father in 1904. Carl Wilhelm Kahlo was born in Germany and emigrated to Mexico in 1891, when he was 19, his Hungarian father a wealthy jeweler paying for his passage. Frida's father eventually became a photographer and changed his first name to Guillermo, the Spanish equivalent of Wilhelm. Frida's mother, Matilda Calderon, was Guillermo's second wife, his first wife having died giving birth to the couple's third child. Frida had three sisters, and none of them got along particularly well with their mother. Matilda was rather cold. She sent Guillermo's first two daughters to live in a nunnery orphanage. Matilda also became ill shortly after Frida's birth, forcing the infant to be breastfed by an Indian wet nurse, another possible reason for the distance between her and her mother. Frida and her younger sister, Christina, were cared for by their two older sisters. Frida was much closer to her father, who was more supportive when she developed polio at the age of six. This affliction postponed her education and may have been the reason that she routinely shaved a few years off of her age. Nevertheless, she was an excellent student, eventually admitted to Mexico's finest high school, the National Preparatory School. Frida was one of only 35 females admitted to a class of 2,000 predominantly male students. Literally much older than most of her classmates, she became involved in various intellectual cliques at the school and considered art a mere pastime and not a career path. 
She also became involved with her first serious romantic involvement with a fellow student named Alejandro Gomez Arias. It was with Gomez Arias that Frida boarded a bus home after school on September 17, 1925. The driver rapidly cut in front of a streetcar, and a horrible accident ensued. Alejandro was relatively unscathed and, after picking himself up, discovered the seriously injured, blood-soaked Frida practically impaled by a metal handrail. Another bystander pulled the rod out of her, and Alejandro carried the broken and bleeding teenager into a pool hall in the vicinity. Conveyed to a hospital, Frida suffered two broken vertebrae, a broken pelvis, broken foot, and serious abdominal puncture suffered when pierced by the metal rod. She would also eventually develop peritonitis and cystitis. Seriously injured, it would be a month before she left the hospital, still encumbered by various splints addressing several bone fractures. Although eventually physically able to return to school, Frida Kahlo never continued with her formal education. It was during this period that, initially immobilized by her injuries, she began to paint seriously for the first time. As her mobility returned, her painting became more ambitious. For the next two years, she would be subjected to additional operations, constricting plaster casts, and poor medical treatment. Compounding the situation was the downward spiral of Guillermo Kahlo's business finances and the family's desperate economic straits. Frida would subsequently describe the atmosphere at the Casa Azul as one of the saddest I've ever seen. Some schoolmates remained close to Frida despite her dropping out of La Prepa. They would visit her when she was bedridden and introduce her to the radical political elements and artistic community of Mexico City. It was through these acquaintances that Frida would cross paths with the muralist and painter Diego Rivera. Frida Kahlo was already familiar with Rivera. He painted a mural in 1922 at the National Preparatory School and was immediately interested when Frida showed him some of her paintings. He depicted her in a mural entitled Battle of the Revolution, painted at the Ministry of Public Education, in a red shirt with a red star as Frida, now a full-fledged member of the Mexican Communist Party, assembled with her clearly identifiable, politically radical friends. Obviously, Rivera also had more than a professional interest in Frida Kahlo. He would be a frequent guest at her home, and on August 21, 1929, the couple married. Kahlo's parents were ultimately supportive of the union, if only for economic reasons alone. With no end to Frida's medical bills in sight and a professional career no longer a possibility, they knew that Rivera was both wealthy and famous. Despite the 21-year age difference, the marriage proceeded and Frida moved into Rivera's large house, already crowded with some of Rivera's Mexican communist associates. Diego Rivera's official connection with the Mexican Communist Party would be severed in a strange incident that occurred in October of 1929. Criticized for taking government payment for his murals and not adhering to strict party dogma and organizational structure, Rivera himself showed up at a party meeting and in his official capacity as the general secretary expelled himself from the party. Frida would also leave the Communist Party after her husband's expulsion. Rivera continued to not be overly strident concerning accepting commissions from those with diametrically opposed political points of view. The U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, Dwight Morrow, former partner at J.P. Morgan 
and wealthy father-in-law of Charles Lindbergh commissioned Rivera to paint a series of murals at the Cortez Palace in Cuernavaca. He also invited Diego and Frida to stay in his summer house while the work was being completed and he was overseas dealing with other diplomatic issues. Rivera would spend all day working and all night drinking tequila, with his wife and other house guests brave enough to attempt to keep up with him. Slowly, Frida herself would start painting again, beginning with a portrait of Lupe Marin, Rivera's ex-wife, who would actually help her cope with the high-maintenance personality of the muralist and instructed her on preparing his favorite meals. This would be the limit of Frida's domesticity. She would later claim to have gotten pregnant during this time period, but aborted the fetus in the second trimester when it was determined to be upside down in her womb. The first year of marriage would also feature a continuous strain on her relationship with her husband, who initiated an affair with his much younger assistant. Frida would remain philosophical about this aspect of her relationship with Rivera, famously stating, I suffered two grave accidents in my life, one in which a streetcar knocked me down. The other accident is Diego. Mexico's politics was also undergoing a repressive and unstable time period. Many of Rivera's artistic brethren left the country under official duress, and Rivera, whose work had gotten attention in the U.S., decided it might be an appropriate time to head north of the border. He went first to San Francisco, where he was commissioned to paint murals at the stock exchange. Accompanied by Frida, he would frequently leave her for days on end, returning without any explanations or apologies over his absences. She, in turn, explored the city on her own, typically independent. They also interacted with local artists recommended by members of the Mexican artistic community. Of the couple, photographer Edward Weston stated, I photographed Diego again, his new wife too. She is in sharp contrast to Lupe, petite, a little doll next to Diego, but a doll in size only, for she is strong and quite beautiful, shows very little of her father's German blood. Dressed in native costume, even to huaraches, she causes much excitement on the streets of San Francisco. People stop in their tracks to look in wonder. Frida's health problems would limit her mobility while she lived in San Francisco, her right foot becoming both more deformed and constricting, a development which caused Frida to spend more time on painting, mostly portraits of friends and newfound acquaintances from her San Francisco social set. One of these portraits is of the famed California horticulturalist Luther Burbank, an important painting that first demonstrates Frida Kahlo's interest in using surrealism as a major component in her work. Instead of a traditional portrait, Burbank is depicted as half man, half tree, his roots eventually dissipating into a horizontal skeleton, a technique that Kahlo would explore throughout her body of work. Rivera would paint two more murals in San Francisco and then, via a brief stop in Mexico, would head for a summer 1931 retrospective of his work at the newly created Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Although Rivera was flattered by the high society attention paid to him by the likes of the Rockefellers and Francis Payne, a prestigious art dealer, Frida was angered by the endless parties and soirees that continued despite the widespread hunger and deprivation of the Depression. Rivera's Museum of Modern Art exhibition, which featured 143 paintings and seven frescoes, was a resounding success. In April 1932, the couple's next stop was Detroit, Michigan, 
While in San Francisco, Rivera had negotiated a deal orchestrated by the Detroit Institute of Art and sponsored by the Ford Motor Company to paint murals in the Institute's interior, 27 in all. The artist compiled sketches after visiting Ford's River Rouge plant that depicted the various workings of the automobile manufacturing process. If Frida was put off by cosmopolitan New York, she loathed Midwestern Detroit and the staid elite who had no idea what to make of the exotically garbed and politically outspoken former member of the Communist Party. Frida's negative demeanor was also prompted by ill health, the result of being pregnant. After deciding to attempt to have the child, she was told that she needed to resort to bed rest for the remainder of the pregnancy. In July, she would eventually suffer a very painful miscarriage that required extended hospitalization. Frida Kahlo would eventually draw on this incident to provide imagery for some of her most provocative and original paintings. As soon as she was healthy enough, she would produce a rapid succession of works and lithographs involving either her pregnancy or her current perspective on the industrial United States. My birth and Henry Ford Hospital were surreal and utterly graphic depictions of a naked blood-soaked Frida in agony during and after her miscarriage. Self-portrait on the border between Mexico and the United States consists of Frida figuratively standing between a rural placid Mexico and a smokestack skyscraper-dominated United States. In early September, Frida got a telegram from her family back in Mexico City informing her that her mother was seriously ill, her breast cancer now entering a terminal stage. Accompanied by her American friend Lucien Bloch, she was forced to take trains and even a bus over the flooded Rio Grande back to the Mexican capital, an arduous journey that took five days. One week after her arrival, her mother died, leaving her father in a state of grief and confusion. She would remain in Mexico for a month to grieve with her family and also check on the house that was being built for her and Diego. Her prospective home would have a bridge that connected two separate wings of the structure, one for her and one for him. She returned to Detroit at the end of October, the city already on the verge of a gray winter. Even before he finished his work in Michigan, Rivera's murals and political persuasions started to generate controversy. Religious and civic authorities criticized them as sacrilegious or rooted in communism, especially as they were created through public efforts. But Detroit also had a strong, labor-oriented, left-leaning community that enthusiastically embraced the murals after they were unveiled. Edsel Ford, who provided funding for the project, also approved of the final product. Frida and Diego would eventually leave Detroit and head for New York, arriving in March 1933. Rivera was commissioned to paint a mural in Rockefeller Center. His public profile was so large at this point that the public could and would pay admission and observe him at work. Frida would only paint one painting during the eight-and-a-half-month stay in New York City. She amused herself by shopping, attending plays and movies, and giving risque interviews to the very serious New York press. As Diego worked diligently to get his mural finished by May 1st, May Day, more controversy was generated by the potentially controversial subject matter. Rivera envisioned a treatment of typical Wall Street figures juxtaposed with workers and members of the proletariat locked in a symbolic struggle to survive. Nelson Rockefeller, then an executive vice president in charge of Rockefeller Center, had already reviewed the preliminary sketches and was initially quite enthusiastic. 
but local newspapers began to publish photos of the unfinished work, assailing its predominantly red color and ridiculing it as communist propaganda. Perhaps to demonstrate that he couldn't be intimidated by such criticism, Diego Rivera included a clear portrait of Lenin within the mural. Already sensitive to public opinion, Nelson Rockefeller initially asked Rivera to substitute an anonymous person for the Lenin likeness. The artist refused, and Rockefeller responded by having uniformed security guards forcibly stop Rivera from painting. On May 9th, when he descended from his scaffold, he was handed a check for the balance that he was owed, 14 of the original $21,000 due to him, and also given a letter of official termination. The work was immediately covered with plain paper and a screen. Although there was a great deal of media criticism of this artistic censorship, ultimately the fresco would be chipped from the walls and discarded. Within days of the Rockefeller Center incident, another commission for Rivera to paint a mural at the Chicago World's Fair was also canceled. Rivera offered to paint the Rockefeller Center mural at any location that would accept it. When he got no takers, he began painting the history of the United States at a left-leaning New York City institution called the New Workers' School. In Detroit, Frida, on a daily basis, would bring Rivera a carefully packed lunch, which they would enjoy together and share with other assistants. But in New York, Frida, her right foot constantly in pain and tired of living in the United States, usually isolated herself in whatever hotel or apartment they were staying in. In letters home to her friends, she referred to the U.S. as Gringolandia. Unfortunately, Diego did not help her outlook when he conducted an affair with another assistant, this time the eventually renowned sculptress Louise Nevelson. Frida and Rivera began to fight savagely over returning to Mexico, her husband enjoying the attention and sophistication of America's cultural capital. In late December 1933, with all of Rockefeller's commissions spent, the couple finally boarded a steamship for Veracruz by way of Havana. When they finally arrived back in Mexico City, Frida and Diego's newly constructed home was complete. The symbolically designed structure was meaningful in its layout. Additionally, Diego Rivera was not happy to be back in Mexico, and he punished Frida in the most fundamentally cruel manner possible by beginning an affair with Frida's sister, Christina. Frida would not paint for a year, and when she did, she created a gruesome painting entitled A Few Small Nips, a painting derived from a news item concerning a drunk who killed his girlfriend by repeatedly stabbing her and then proclaiming to police, quote, but I only gave her a few small nips. The naked female victim is sprawled on a bed with multiple bloody stab wounds. Her brutish, knife-wielding killer standing over her fully clad and even wearing a fedora. If this painting was any indication, Frida's outlook during this time period was one of depression and despair. Rivera, also generally unhappy about living in Mexico, stopped working, possibly also stunned when Frida, usually tolerant of her husband's amorous adventures, decided to move out. Strangely, this did not mean that the couple no longer spent time together. Diego kept clothes at her apartment, and the two socialized together frequently. He also picked up her medical bills, a not inconsequential amount of money. Although she was angered by her sister's betrayal, she would remain quite close with both her and her niece and nephew. She would eventually return to the house she shared with Rivera. The situation there was forever volatile in terms of their potential for separation. Perhaps understanding that her husband's philandering was a permanent part of their relationship, she began to have her own adventures, not always restricted to men. Diego encouraged such liaisons with women, 
but was outraged by any of Frida's heterosexual affairs. Into this utterly preposterous relationship would be thrust an individual who might be responsible for the most bizarre love triangle in the history of Western civilization. Since the death of Lenin in 1924, a power struggle over not only the Soviet government, but also the international communist movement ensued with the winner Joseph Stalin and the loser Leon Trotsky. But Stalin was not content with merely expelling Trotsky from the party and the country. His megalomaniacal paranoia would subsequently require the physical extermination of his opponent, including Trotsky's family. Many of Trotsky's relatives, including his first wife and children, would be imprisoned, exiled, or executed. Initially expelled by Stalin, Trotsky himself fled first to Turkey, then France, where he was initially offered asylum, but subsequently rejected, and ultimately Norway, which also eventually deported Trotsky to Mexico. There, his exile was welcomed by the leftist government of Lazaro Cardenas, a previous supporter of the Republican government in Spain, who met with Diego Rivera and other Mexican communist supporters of Trotsky, and then granted the exiled Bolshevik, his second wife and grandson, political asylum. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Frida Kahlo. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Frida, a biography of Frida Kahlo by Hayden Herrera and Frida Kahlo, The Brush of Anguish by Martha Zamora. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <music>